Welcome to the Woman Warriors Podcast, where we're working to help you call a truce with your anxiety. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, here's your host, Elizabeth Cush, LCPC. Welcome back to the Woman Warriors podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in, for subscribing, for following us on social media, for just being a part of this journey. My guest this week is Rachel Louise Snyder. She is the author of the book, No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Washington Post, The New Republic, and elsewhere. Her other books include Fugitive Denim, a moving story of people and pants in the borderless world of global trade, and the novel What We've Lost is Nothing. She's been the recipient of an Overseas Press Award for her work on This American Life. No Visible Bruises was awarded the J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Award. An associate professor at American University, Snyder lives in Washington, D.C. I'm really, really excited to talk to Rachel about her book. I worked in uh, a domestic violence program at a local hospital here in Annapolis for about 10 years and provided crisis counseling for domestic violence victims and survivors. And so this topic is very near and dear to my heart. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I hope you'll read her book. And I'm excited to get this started. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for being a part of the Women Warriors podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about your book, No Visible Bruises. Um, I'm hoping that initially, if you don't mind, um, you share in the book that your goal with the book was to shine a flashlight in the darkest corners to show what domestic violence looks like from the inside, from the inside out. So what inspired you? If you could share a little bit about you, but also what did inspire you to research and write this book? Well, I, I don't know. In a way, I feel like there's, there's two answers to that, both like internal and external. I mean, I, um, I lost my, my mother, my real mother when I was just before my ninth birthday. Mm. And I feel like in some ways, as you might expect, that shaped my life. It shaped um, just a kind of general interest I had in survival, like how people survive what they survive. And I, I wouldn't have ever, you know, put it that way, like as I was growing up. But but looking back in hindsight, I feel like I was I was sort of always seeking out not so much the darkness, but like how people survive the mm-hmm. darkness. And so when I became a writer and a journalist, um, those were the kinds of stories I was drawn to. So I, you know, traveled around the world, but I was always doing, in some sense, a story of survival, child brides, or, you know, women in prison for love crimes and Kabul, or, um, 
you know, whatever, whatever the story was, you know, victims of gang rape in Cambodia or victims of genocide. Mm. And so when I moved, I, I lived overseas. I lived in London first and then uh, Cambodia. And when I moved back to the States, I had a daughter by then and I, I couldn't sort of like go off for a month, you know, doing an assignment <laughs> or whatever. And so I had to find stuff to cover here and nothing really, nothing felt sort of palpably um, like it was standing on the front lines of humanity in some sense in the way that like it had when I was living in Cambodia until I met this woman, Suzanne Debuse. Yeah. who runs the Jeannie Geiger Crisis Center in Massachusetts. And she uh, she told me how she had had a program that used risk assessment to try to predict domestic violence homicide before it happened. And I, as a way to prevent it, and I just, I remember just my jaw hitting the ground, like, how can that be? And, mm. you know, most of the stories I've worked on throughout my life have been, you know, maybe I work on them for six months and then I publish something about it and then I move on to whatever the next thing is. But this, for whatever reason, has sort of captured me. And I think it's captured me because it, um, it, it first of all, it's so pervasive. And second of all, it's so, it doesn't affect a certain class, a certain race, a certain age, a certain anything. Yeah. You know, it affects everybody universally. I mean, a billion people around the world. Yeah. Right now are the victims of domestic violence. It's just staggering numbers. It's crazy. Yeah. Totally. So that's the I guess that's how I'd answer that. That's kind of a big answer, but <laughs> Yeah. The, the best ones usually are, I guess. Yes, indeed. And <laughs> I know that uh it's you know, I mean, as you you share, like the the this is not an easy topic to cover, and it affects so many, in particular, women, and you know, because they are the majority of domestic violence victims and survivors. Um, I know that it can be really hard to for someone maybe who hasn't experienced domestic violence or the people who are put in place to help them, police, prosecutors, lawyers, you know, there's often this misunderstanding about why they're not leaving or if they're really in danger. And I know that it can be frustrating for the people who are working with them. I know from my own experience, we saw women again, you know, when I worked at the hospital and the domestic violence program, we would see people again and again, or we would follow them for years just to continue to check in on safety and were they okay. And But I feel like you really have explored in the book about this myth of like why she didn't leave, like that, you know, yeah. everything was okay, yeah. she was fine, or she right. really didn't, you know, she's she's manipulating us or whatever the the potential perception is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the, that was one of the things that when I first started looking into this, that, you know, my mind was blown, I guess, which was they do leave, they leave all the time and leaving is leaving gets them killed. Yeah. You know, you, you can look at any newspaper headline and you'll see some version of like, they were in the middle of a 
nasty divorce or she had just left him or she was planning on leaving him, like whatever the particulars are, mm-hmm. like that is such a common moment for women to be killed. But also leaving is, you know, leaving is a process. It's not an event. So there's a woman in my book who, you know, knew that her husband would follow her anywhere she went. So she was putting things in place and it was, her view was like years. Like she, her husband wouldn't let her work, but he would let her take classes. She wanted to earn a nursing degree so that she could someday afford to raise her kids on her own without his help. And she went to the school and she was 19 years old. She had two kids and they said, well, you don't have enough years of tax returns. You know, you're not an independent. And she said, are you kidding me? I have two children. I haven't lived with my parents in three years. Mm. And I said, well, you've got to, you've got to marry your partner then. And then you'll have the years. You'll be able to show the the years of you being independent for him with him. Wow. So, so, but she basically had to marry the guy that she was actively trying to leave to eventually leave him. So, and and that's like one example. I could give you 15 different examples that exist in my book that just show like they leave again and again, but it's, we don't know what leaving looks like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just want to read, if you don't mind, just you're talking about Michelle from your book and yeah. I just want to read something that you wrote that just, I don't know, touched me, broke my heart, you know, all those things. Uh, You say, uh, if this is after she has recanted, you know, saying, you know, no, everything's fine. I'm not going to press charges. And you said, Michelle did not recant because she was a coward or because she believed she had overreacted or because she believed Rocky to be any less dangerous She did not recant because she was crazy or because she was a drama queen or because any of this was anything less than a matter of life and death. She did not recant because she had lied. She recanted to stay alive. She recanted to keep her children alive. And I think that's just so freaking powerful, but Mm. so distressing too. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of amazing to hear hear someone else read it. Like it takes on... um, a life outside of me in a way. I know mm-hmm. this is like not really the point of the podcast, but no, it's like, no, it's, I get it's it. It's a powerful experience for me to, to listen to it. Actually, I guess it's my way of saying thank you, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like we, we misunderstand the, the, the nature of domestic violence, like just full stop. And I mean, from everything, everything from like the origins of violence to the outcomes of violence. I feel like we misunderstand it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Judges misunderstand it. Um, sisters of victims misunderstand it. Children misunderstand it. Law enforcement misunderstands it. Social workers misunderstand it. Like we all in, in certain ways, I mean, not across the board, but in certain ways we misunderstand it. And I feel like part of that is because we just, it's, it's we don't talk about it. Yeah. We really like as a society, we don't talk about it. I mean, I really think, that, and I've said this a couple of times, but the conversations that began to happen in this country in 2017 with Me Too, but then especially during the Kavanaugh hearings, yeah. where suddenly women, including me, um, were having conversations with their brothers, their partners, their guy friends, their fathers, whatever, and saying, yeah, Me Too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Know? When I was 13 this, when I was 14 this, you know, and 
that I feel like my biggest hope for my book is that that it will spur those kinds of conversations mm-hmm. in households that we can normalize the discussion of domestic violence so that it's not shameful for victims to come forward. It's not shameful for abusers to seek help. It's not shameful for the children who are in those situations. It's not shameful for law enforcement and advocates when they miss something. Yeah. You know, yeah. I just feel like the key to that is talking about it. Oh, and so much of your book, which I truly resonate with is just yeah, there is there needs to be this connection, this talking about it, this sharing, so that too, like the I think like the Me Too movement, that we can start, maybe people who are in incredibly violent or abusive relationships can say like, oh, this, this isn't okay. Or this is something I experienced back then and didn't necessarily consider it abusive. But yeah, Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think it's really true. Because I feel like um, I've had so many people come up to me and say, you know, I didn't recognize it as this. I didn't mm. recognize. And so sometimes you just don't when you're standing in the midst of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I totally, I think that that is, it's, it's not uncommon. And it's one of the reasons why, like every talk I give, I just say to people like, you can go to the danger assessment website yourself, dangerassessment.org. Now the questions are weighted. You won't be able to necessarily like figure out your own score, but it will give you, it gives the list of the 20 highest risk indicators for domestic violence homicide right there. Yeah. Right. And I feel like the woman in my book, Michelle, had she seen those 20 things? I mean, I did a, I did a risk assessment on her, you know, as I was writing the book, I mean, she, she was killed ultimately. So mm-hmm. out of the 20 questions, two of them, we just don't know the answer to. Right. Um, but she scored like as high as you can score. Yeah. You know, yeah, and I was like, what would it have meant had she had access to this information? Yeah, you know, yeah, well, and so recognizing too, I think, you know, what you had described in the book, which I really had never considered that not only does domestic violence do domestic violence homicides end up often killing the partner and the abuser themselves, but it can lead to other violence like children and relatives. And it can, it can, it starts as a something at home, but it can be this huge rippling effect as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, something like 80 or 85% of men in prison today have domestic violence, either as, as witnesses or as victims in their childhoods or sexual assault. And I, you know, like I say that not because it excuses their behavior, but because it contextualizes us. And it's, it's like a roadmap for us, right? It's like, it's like a big neon sign saying, this is where you should put resources and energy. And Mm. we're completely ignoring it. It's so frustrating. Oh my gosh. So frustrating. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I want to go back to, you know, the lethality assessment and things that, you know, are warning signs for potential fatalities. And I know that um, oftentimes the injuries of victims are overlooked or misjudged in their severity, but they can be those warning signs. So what, you know, what did you find in your research? Well, I think, I think the most obvious one or the one that is, um, perhaps getting the most attention and rightly so is strangulation Mm -hmm. or choking, which are two different things. Um, 
but they're often conflated. Yeah. Um, like literally choking is cutting off the airway, right? Like shoving a fist or a ball of socks or something to cut off the airway. Strangulation is cutting off the blood to the, to the brain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not uncommon for someone who's being strangled to actually still be able to breathe. Right. right but right. they pass out from the, anyway. This yeah. Is the, yeah. The, either, either one can cause traumatic brain injury. Either one is very often the penultimate act before domestic violence homicide. Right. So it is as a sign of dangerousness on a very different um, level than like, I don't know, a slap or a punch or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's something that, you know, needs to be, I just think we need awareness of that and we need um, law enforcement to be trained on how to f- identify you know, strangulation if it's not visible, because there are signs that you can, that you can, yeah, um, or, you know, there's, there's other types of ways to, to figure out if someone's been strangled. But yeah. at any rate, that's, that's one of the biggest things. And then, you know, another one that is sort of was sort of surprising to me is um, threats of suicide. Yeah, right? Yeah, you think like, somebody is going to threaten their the person they're abusing. But they often like often they threaten to kill themselves as a sort of like emotional blackmail. Mm-hmm. You leave me, I'm going to kill myself. And then you feel responsible oh. for someone else's life. And the, the fact is like women and men are built differently emotionally. Actually, let me rephrase that. I don't know if we're built different emotionally, but we're certainly acculturated. Yes. Differently. Yes. yes. And so women are, are made to believe that we hold the, the fragile family in our hands right and it's mm-hmm. up to us to keep the peace and take care, take care. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah exactly so um so threats of suicide was one that i mm. really surprised me i didn't understand it yeah yeah but it keeps i mean one it can be very manipulative like you're not going to go anywhere if your partner's saying if you leave me i'm going to kill myself i mean probably not and two that it it also is a I think a statement of the the level of violence they're willing to go through to keep you. Yeah, and I would say actually when you said probably not, I'm not sure that's true. I think what actually happens more often is they they'll say, give a threat of suicide, hmm. but they're not going to go down without you. No. So you end up with a murder suicide. Right. A homicide suicide. Yeah. 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 And you know, I had a researcher say to me once just this thing that was just beautifully compassionate. He said He's a violence researcher named um, oh, the writer Jim Harrison is coming to mind, and that's not right. <laughs> it's James. Um, gosh, it'll come to me. But anyway, yeah. he said suicide is no answer to the threat of homicide. Both mm-hmm. are equally violent, and I just thought that needs to be our approach. Yeah, that level of of empathy and really and grace in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. Um, if we, if we if we only help victims and we abandon the perpetrators, we're only creating more perpetrators and more victims in the future. And and I think what I I I took away probably more knowledge about the perpetrators' perspectives from your book than I, I think having done work in the domestic violence field, there is this sort of uh, message that abuser intervention programs don't work, uh, mm-hmm. that 
perpetrators don't change, that they are, you know, sort of put in this box of, we're not even going to think about helping them and we're, we'll just get the victims out. Like, let's get them to safety versus let's see how, like, how can we change what's happening versus let's just protect. And so I appreciated your perspective on that. As I began to write about it and research it, like in the kind of in the early years, I, I just realized we were, we really were only getting the victim's perspective. And although I might empathize more with a victim than with an abuser. I also felt like as a journalist and as a, as just a curious person in the world, I really wanted that perspective somehow. Like one of my questions just in, inside my own mind was like, do they think they're violent? Hmm. Like victims never recognize themselves. Right. I can't even tell you how many emails I got, even just post publication of this book that are like, I'm not your typical victim. I'm like, no one ever thinks they no. are a typical victim. No. But like, do perpetrators think that way too? Or do they know they're violent, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, they don't know they're they're violent necessarily any more than victims know they're victims. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think we want to believe that these two categories are sort of mutually exclusive and they're they're un they're they're not messy. Our victims are saints and our perpetrators are devils yeah right right but like the real world isn't like that right sometimes victims are very messed up sometimes they Mm. have addiction issues or they are in turn then abusive to their children because they're being abused or what whatever the thing is sometimes Mm -hmm. perpetrators are you know um wonderful wonderful sons to their mothers but terrible to their wives i mean i'm sort of making things up but like yeah we don't we want to believe that we are that we are not recognizable in those two categories and the fact is that we are all of us are yeah yeah well and sort of by keeping it so extreme in these you know a perpetrator is the devil the victim is the angel or or whatever the victim is the victim like that's not me like, I can't be that guy or I can't be that person. Yeah. It's not me, but it also means like when someone stands before a judge, they have to fit that stereotype. And if they don't, the court system could further victimize them. It's espe- it's especially true for victims, right? But like, yes, if someone's had traumatic brain injury or someone has addiction issues or they've been homeless or whatever, and they go before a judge, they're, they're going to have a lot less sympathy than someone who's, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like whatever, well spoken and yeah, articulate and clean. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, I know just having worked in an emergency room, the victims who would come in with a lot of mental health issues, drug abuse issues, uh, pain issues, like there was definitely, let's just call domestic violence because they're, you know, they're too much to handle. They are just too much to deal with and almost a dismissive. Like they're the crazy ones. We don't, we can't even treat them like human. I know, almost. Exactly. Yeah. And then what happens is you treat the most acute thing and ignore all the rest of it. Right. Right. Like right. let's set this broken bone and we're going to forget the fact that she's a victim of severe violence or whatever the thing is. Right. Yes. So there's that. And then the other thing is we don't um, like our, like our emergency room, our emergency rooms don't regularly screen for 
no, it's brain true. injuries and domestic violence victims. And yeah. so yeah. they may have an undiagnosed brain injury. And of course, as, as you know, I'm sure and many of your listeners, you know, brain injuries are cumulative injuries. So the more they get knocked around, the worse it's going to get. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and yet our ERs are not screening. Yeah. Um, which is not to put blame on them. I know there's money issues. I know there's logistics issues. I know rural hospitals don't often have MRI machines. Like I know there are there are barriers. Yeah. But like, let's say what the problem is and then we can try to come up with solutions, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and a lot of it is awareness, right? And training to know that that's something they need to be looking for. It's absolutely, it's awareness, it's training. I mean, a, a, one of the surprising things when I was researching the book was discovering that like many victims and perpetrators don't interact with law enforcement at all. Yeah. They're domestic violence advocates at yeah. all. Yeah. But they will often, you know, victims will often go to their clergy, their coworkers, their, um, their, their doctors, right. right? And so those people need to have much more training in this kind of stuff. And we can't have clergy saying like, oh, God, you you, know, you made a vow before God, so you got to stay in there and get your ass whooped. Like, come on. Yeah, right? No, let's That's not a, have so that. probably an issue beyond the podcast right now, but it's like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're gonna, I'm going to tackle that one at some point. <laughs> right. That is not the answer. That is <laughs> right, not right. the answer. So, so, you know, would you, from the research that you did, what, what works? Like what, what makes a difference in a community where, you know, the domestic violence program is and, you know, what makes it work more effectively, effectively for the victims and the perpetrators? You know, that's, that's, of course, a very difficult question to answer. And in some, in some sense was the overarching question of the entire book. Yeah. But I feel like, um, first of all, I feel like there are very different barriers to different communities. So there, rural communities have different barriers than urban communities, right? And where you put your resources and where the logistics of, of things are and what kind of access you have. So those are all questions that need to be answered on a community by community basis. Mm-hmm. But I would say that there are sometimes really small things like um, having a jurisdiction check their bail statutes to see if there is a way to hold someone um, prior to trial on dangerousness, containing the offender rather than the victim. That's one of the biggest changes because um, if you can hold someone, and I know in Pennsylvania and in Massachusetts, they both have um, specific dangerousness statutes, bail statutes mm-hmm. to hold someone pre-trial. And these are these are high risk. These are in high risk categories. This isn't for someone who just like you know like slaps a cell phone out of your hand, right? <laughs> this mm-hmm. is like yeah, yeah. Th- th- that. You think yeah. they could they could kill their partners, right? Somebody who is is got the signs of dangerousness anyway. So yeah. that's one of the things. The uh, another one is um, communities where the police and the domestic violence advocates and the courts have open communication with each other. They've knocked down those, those sort of cultural barriers, those professional barriers to say like, okay, what are the best practices for our community? We've got limited resources. What should we do? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, uh, communities where, and one of the, one of the resulting elements of such a relationship, just to give you more kind of boots on the ground perspective is I think one of the th- frustrating things for law enforcement is that the, they they'll get called back to a house multiple times, sure. or they'll get called back and then or they'll get called and then when they arrive they get yelled at, 
And if they understand the dynamics of domestic violence, they are able to contextualize all that stuff. And what's important for police is to feel like they're actually making a difference. So like here in D.C. and Philadelphia and Boston, some other places, police are able to call right away on scene and get an advocate to do a safety plan with a victim, like whether it's three o'clock in the morning on Christmas Eve or like no matter what time of day mm. or night. Yeah. That makes a big difference. Um, you know, police being trained in um, how to, how to write police reports so that prosecutors have evidence to work with in prosecuting cases. Yeah. So, you know, to, to, to go back to that strangulation issue, for example, only about 15% of strangu- strangulation injuries are visible to the to the naked eye. Yeah. So if an officer is not trained to to know that like urination is a frequent sign of strangulation. Yeah. Right. Or red dots in the eyes or around the ears, it's called petechiae. Yeah. Or maybe if their area has um, invested in forensic cameras to see bruising under the skin all of those things help because if they don't write strangulation in the report that gets yeah that gets that, that doesn't gets get charged yeah. right and yeah. it's a federal it's a it's a felony under federal law strangulation right. it's it's not a felony across all states actually dc it's not a felony but under federal law you can charge it as a felony so it's just it's just one example of many but in my experience Um, researching this book, what I found was that there isn't like one thing or one recipe. It's like a whole bunch of little things that any given community can do. Yeah. 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 Two things. I, I, we had just gotten pretty recently after I, right before I left the domestic violence program and went into my own private practice, they um, had gotten a forensic camera to take pictures just for that reason, for strangulation. And in the cases Mm -hmm. where there had been clear, you know, I had seen photographs where you can see the strangulation marks beneath the skin that you could not see with the naked eye, which is crazy. Like, so that it, it can show up in these, I guess, ultraviolet light or whatever it is. Yeah, 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 exactly. The bruising. Yeah, yeah. Uh Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they're expensive, but if I I think they're a a much better investment than, um, you know, homicide investigations and jail time and (laughs) things like that. Totally. Absolutely. Well, and as you said, it gives, I think, too, the victims sort of more ammunition if they do decide to go to court, get a protective order, like if there is documentation, whether it's at a hospital or a police station, that this happened and there was this injury that's fatal, potentially. I feel like it gives them weight. Right. And it also, you know, you think about Omar Mateen, who did the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting, killed 49 people. He had strangled his first wife and Mm. in the state of florida it is a felony and it's punishable by up to 10 years in jail in prison and he was never charged with felony strangulation so he served no jail time and he was able to access guns and as a result of that 49 people are dead today Mm. right i mean i think that i think (laughs) somebody should have been called the task for that because yeah yeah um, you know it was potentially preventable Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, it sickens me. Oh. So I wanted to just, uh, just on this topic of how to, like, I guess, 
why it can be so hard for uh, communities to uh, effectively help domestic violence victims and abusers. Uh, you say here in the book, um, in domestic violence, the two main entities poised at the front lines are advocates and police. Two professions with entirely different cultures, the modern feminists and the traditional patriarchy. Uh, and you say, in my near decade of reporting, of researching domestic violence all across America, the most successful cities and towns I encountered had either lowered their domestic violence homicide rates or increased available services, all had this in common. They'd broken down the cultural barriers between their police departments and their domestic violence crisis centers. And that just speaks so, I mean, like that whole communication piece, like let's talk to each other. Let's, mm -hmm. let's figure out how to help and really prevent these fatalities. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, um, I, I mean, it's really true. And I think it's, it's, you know, look, we all hold stereotypes. I mean, certainly we do of any, any, probably any group really, but sure. Um, I think that, that when you see advocates working with police officers, you really get a sense of the complication of any individual case. And I just think it's, I, I just think it's a, it's a lifesaver. Talking is a lifesaver. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I also think, I just want to get back to the, like, the talking thing is that, like, you know, society moves slowly in, in some ways, right? Like, women have been, we've had the right to vote for a hundred years, right. and yet we haven't signed the ERA yet, right? right? And the Violence Against Women Act of 2018 has not yet been reauthorized. <sighs> yeah. Because oh. somehow, you know, um, domestic violence has become politicized, which is disgusting. But mm -hmm. I feel like the role for all of us is not that we can change policy or create policy overnight, but that society moves before policy is enacted. Like, you look at any social issue, like look, look at the suffrage movement or look at the civil rights movement. And, and socially, those movements began long before the legislation. Oh, absolutely. Legislation that allowed them to begin, right? Yeah. So I feel like one of the one of the keys to our own complacency is just to talk about it. Yep. Right. Just to push a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And shine a light into it to say like this. Yeah, this is don't let's not create all the shame and blame and let's get something mm -hmm. out in the open. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Rachel, you dove very deeply into some very disturbing domestic violence fatalities. And I know as you and I were talking before we began recording that you yourself now have found yourself in a situation where there was a domestic violence fatality. So, I mean, mm. how has all of this been impacting you just personally as well as professionally? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like this is something else that we, that we need to talk about much more openly. The idea of vicarious trauma or, mm. you know, secondary PTSD, anybody who works with, um, any kind of violence, you know, whether you're a, a nurse working in a hospital setting or a journalist or a police officer, like, I think that, that, you know, any one of us are, um, susceptible to it. And I, I, in 2014 and into 2015, I was diagnosed with vicarious trauma mm. and I took a whole year off of reporting this. I mean, I just, I was like, I, I have to just get away from this. <laughs> like I painted and I 
took up bike riding. Yeah, yeah, had to take care of yourself. Yeah, exactly. But I, um, I came home from my book tour three weeks ago and found that, um, in my community, my, one of my dearest, oldest friends, a woman I've known for 20 years who went to every event I had in Chicago, I stayed with her. Mm. Um, her brother killed his wife and then killed himself. Mm. And, that was here in DC where I live. They were both state department, both foreign service employees. And they had two daughters and their oldest daughter was one of my daughter's closest friends Mm. is one of my daughter's closest friends. So, and it's only been, it's been less than three weeks since that happened. So we are, we're reeling right now. I mean, the sister is, is temporarily living with me while she figures out what to do. And the courts have to figure out what to do with the kids still. And, Mm. All the kids in my daughter's school um, mm. have interacted with grief counselors and trauma counselors, including my own daughter, mm. um, who's been having nightmares and is calling me crying from her father's house. And it is a it is a a way of domestic violence homicide. It is a facet that I had been lucky enough not to have to deal with until yeah three weeks ago, and. Mm. Um, you know, I I have done in my mind a kind of danger assessment on them. And in fact, we knew they were going through a really ugly divorce and that um, he was like emotionally, I mean, he had isolated himself sort of in the basement. Yeah. But they actually did not fit any of those. Like the, the people in my book were, you know, had scores of 18 out of 20 or whatever. Yeah. And they they, they had like a score of like three. Mm. so they were not they did not meet those high risk markers and um i'm trying very hard not to uh like just go over and over in my head going what did i miss what did i miss what did i miss yeah 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 so um yeah it's uh there's a lot of there's a lot of tears being shed in my house right now it's just uh It's devastated our kids, our community, and it's devastated me in very different and intimate ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so sorry that you're having to go through that, and and I just can't even imagine how difficult that is. I know. I'm I'm getting a little better. Like the first couple, the first week was real. I was really raw. It was really tough. But his sister. is also a therapist, actually, as it turns oh, out. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Wow. So um and she she both she and her mom are very much like this is this is why we need to keep talking about this. Mm. This can happen to any family at any time. And um yeah. and so I have their support to kind of just keep on my public mission and that helps a ton. If I was out here feeling guilty about it, I don't think I'd be able to do it, but I know that yeah. they are behind and me. Yeah. Yeah. And that takes a lot of strength and it's hard though. Hard to talk about it when it's you, you know, I mean, it's hard to talk about anybody, but yeah, but yeah. Oh no, for sure. I mean, I knew both of them. I went out for drinks with her, you know, Mm. a couple of times and, um, I, I didn't really connect with her. So we, I didn't, you know, wasn't friends with either one of them, Yeah, but I was such good friends with his sister and, our daughters were such good friends. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your sharing that difficult 
experience, but I think it does highlight just that it can happen anywhere. Like there's, I know, I know. I mean, there is there like people, my, one of my colleagues said, well, at least, you know, the name of your next book is going to be savage irony. I was like, (laughs) Oh, okay. It's a pretty good title. Like I just was like, yeah, I'm on a book tour for domestic violence homicide when my book tour is supported by a domestic violence homicide. I mean, it's, it's an irony that is almost too great to bear. Absolutely. So what would you like to share with the listening audience if they either feel as if someone they know might be at risk or they themselves feel at risk for, you know, either in a domestic violence relationship or potentially a fatal one? Mm. I'd like to whittle this down to one thing, but I can't. No, so I'm going to just say it. a couple things really fast. I'm just going to spout off a few things. Okay. One Talk to boys and girls when they're in middle school. Yeah. Parents, talk to your kids about this. Talk to them about consent and all that stuff. They'll learn some consent at school. What they probably won't learn at school is what is acceptable and what is not acceptable when it comes to somebody like being your boyfriend or girlfriend or ordering you around or trying to coerce you emotionally. And you have to start when they're like 11, 12 years old. Yeah. That's one thing. I would say if you are concerned about a friend, a, 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 a sibling, a, you know, whatever, um, you can go to the danger assessment website yourself, see the 20 markers. You can certainly give them the danger assessment website. But there are two other um, elements that I would that I would think about. One is have them do a timeline of their own relationship because sometimes you don't recognize or see an escalation until you see it in paper and on paper in front of you. Yeah. So it's really important to try to just get a sense of that escalation if it is in fact escalating. Um, and then two, there are on the danger assessment website, there are apps that you can download to your phone that will set up an emergency call and you could have that emergency call, call the police or call a neighbor who will call the police or call a friend who will call the police. You can set it up any way you want. I can't remember what the name of the app is, but yeah, if you press it on your phone, the phone will automatically put that into place, but then it switches to like the phone screen switches like Spotify or something like that immediately. Right. Cool. So that if your phone gets taken from, from your abuser by your abuser, which is not uncommon, it won't appear that you've called you've, yeah. the police on that person. And then the last thing I would say is, um, I think we all need to be to not feel bad about pressing a little bit. You know, domestic violence victims often speak in like coded language. They often say things like, well, things aren't aren't going well at home or, you know, we haven't been getting along lately. Yeah. And I think if you just press a little bit and say, what, like, what do you mean by that? Or what's going on? Um, yeah. It might be just normal fighting. And it might not be. And that person might say, well, this is kind of personal. And you might say, yeah, I know. I know it is. And I just want to make sure that you're safe. If you're Mm -hmm. safe, that's cool. You can talk to me or not talk to me. But like, I read this book and I just want to make sure that you're safe. (laughs) You know, I I just feel like, yeah, put the blame on me if you have to. I've read this book enough. Writers made me paranoid. But that's okay. I can handle it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and be open to listening, right? To hear if there is, if you feel like there is a problem, you know, if someone is telling you things really aren't good, be there mm-hmm. for that person too, you know? I mean, I feel like the listening yeah. part is important too. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, 
Rachel, I appreciate so, so much your being a part of the podcast. How do people find you? How will they find your book? They can, I know they can find it on Amazon, but uh, yeah. Yeah, they can find it on Amazon. Pretty much every bookstore is carrying it now, as far as I know. Wow. Um, libraries are a great place. It was just picked yeah. by the New York Public Library as like a summer reading choice. So, you know, wow. to the beach with you. Um, That's and awesome. And my website is rachelouisesnyder.com. So easy. So easy. <laughs> just my name. <laughs> That's so great. Ah, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time and uh, being here with us today. Well, thank you. It was uh, weirdly, uh, but it was really a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I guess, I guess at the end of the day, it kind of it kind of feels good to feel like you're making change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I would think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So thank you for your podcast too. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Rachel. I know that domestic violence and especially domestic violence homicides is not an easy topic to tune into, listen to, tackle, but I appreciate your hanging in there and listening to us talk about this very difficult topic. And it is something that, you know, as both Rachel and I stress that it's something we need to talk about more. It needs to come out of the dark darkness. It is not a private matter. It affects all of us. It affects families. It affects communities. It affects us personally. And if we begin to shed some light, if we begin to talk about it, we communicate, we ask questions, we get curious, we listen, maybe we can start making a difference and creating an atmosphere where there isn't quite so much shame and blame surrounding domestic violence in general. Well, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I hope you'll tune in next week. I appreciate all of you listeners and subscribers for tuning in. And if you want to know more about other episodes, you can go to womanwarriors.com, also on Instagram at Woman Warriors and on Facebook, same thing, at Woman Warriors. If you or someone you know is struggling in a domestic violence relationship and you need resources and help, and you don't know where to find them in your local area, you can call 1-800-799-7233, which is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. You can also find them at thehotline.org, where you can chat with an advocate or just find resources on their website. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Ciao for now from This Woman Warrior. Thanks for listening and subscribing to the Woman Warriors podcast. Music was written and performed by Andy Cush. If you'd like more information on this episode, you can find the show notes, the resources shared today, and links to the guests' profiles at womanwarriors.com.